And change so you're smarter than most people and braver than braver than most people. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. Uh, maybe it's just your smartphone. Actually, it's like you have to be really, really bad to miss it nowadays. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. We'll be in Matthew chapter five. It's on page six seventy-seven. Matthew chapter five. Also, if you're on the end of a row, would you please grab a basket? It's got some communication cards in it, and hand it down the row. Um, if you would like to hand off your contact information with one of these contact or communication cards, you're welcome to do that. That'll help us to welcome you better and to get to know you a bit, at least it's a starting point. All right, good. I hope you feel right at home today. I hope that this is a challenging morning for you. I hope that it's an encouraging morning for you. I am confident that you'll be glad you got out of bed and came to church today. Um, I'm excited about a message to bring. I'm excited about a season after the teaching for us to respond and to to um, greet folks and to receive communion and to sing to the Lord. Um, this is a grounding time. This is a centering time. We need to base our sense of identity and our sense of purpose uh, around, um, around something. Our hearts are built to be centered around something. And so um, my, my hope for you and for myself is that increasingly this rhythm that we participate in together, this, this, this tradition this uh, routine of gathering together on the first day of the week, early on Sunday morning, will be something that is increasingly life-giving to you, um, and that it becomes more and more important and powerful as time goes on. All right, great. We'll find a seat. Come on in. There's some spaces up front. Preaching is always better there and in the middle. Uh, so come on in. We're just getting started. Welcome, welcome. Well, last summer... No, last September, it was September, I joined my mom for the first two weeks of a six-week pilgrimage um, across Spain. Traditionally, this pilgrimage begins in France, crosses the Pyrenees, and then extends from the east side of Spain all the way to the west side of Spain, ends at this church called the Church of St. James. It is called El Camino de Santiago. It is the way of St. James. Traditionally, it follows the steps of one of Jesus' apostles, James, uh, the steps of his missionary journey. Um, and uh, for a thousand years, this has been a walking journey that people, primarily Christians, have taken as a spiritual discipline, as a way of sort of simplifying their life, creating some time and some space to pray. Um, most people walk the, most people who walk the Camino take a serious amount of time to prepare because the, on a physical level it's challenging. Like my mom walked the whole thing, so that worked out to be about 18 to 20 miles a day, often on really rugged terrain for 34 days in a row. So it's a challenging thing that you need to prepare for. There's also the logistical challenge of the whole thing, because you carry everything on your back. Everything that you have, you, you bring with you. Some, of course, get around this today because now there are services that will cart your bags to the next town, which is lame, but you're not supposed to say that it's lame. Um, most people who walk the Camino will do so with the desire to embrace at least at some level, to experience at least at some level the traditional way of the pilgrim, which means you carry only what you need and you trust that anything else that you need will be provided for you along the way. And we experienced this, my mom and I. We experienced this provision element of this pilgrimage. Um, sometimes people would leave fruit outside of their doors if they lived near the, the trail. 
And you were welcome just to take the fruit and the crackers as your breakfast. Sometimes we would glean um, figs or grapes along the vineyards or the orchards that we, that we walked through. And I had read about this. Even one time my mom entered into a town uh, in the middle of a rainstorm, only to find that the hostel was full, but then a local family welcomed her into their guest room. So this is this beautiful kind of uh, culture or, or tradition that surrounds the Camino. And I knew about this because I read about it, um, so I wasn't super surprised when we were experiencing this thing and being encouraged. Just, yeah, take this food. Just take this. Um, what I was kind of encouraged or what I was kind of surprised about, though, was this, that every day we would see things along the way that people were leaving. Uh, it wasn't trash. It was good gear that people were leaving on the side of the trail. Boots, jackets, fleeces, bottles of lotion, electronics, um, books. Uh, one time we, we came across and we, we saw here on this like signpost, some, some boots, like a couple hundred dollar boots. Uh, sometimes we saw uh, like this was a basket of underwear that somebody was like, here, take what you need and leave what you don't need. Um, just stuff that people left behind. Here's what I found so interesting about this. Because before the pilgrimage began, most people had spent a lot of time and effort and energy and resources figuring out exactly what they needed for this experience. If they were anything like me, they considered a bunch of options. They read all kinds of reviews online. They probably spent extra money getting the exact piece of gear that they felt like they needed for this trip. But then somewhere along the way, uh, what they once thought they needed, with remarkable frequency, they were leaving behind because what they once thought they needed, now they no longer even wanted. The boots that they spent a couple hundred dollars on a couple weeks earlier because they needed those boots, those are the boots they needed, were now sitting on the side of the trail because they realized that not only did they not need those boots, they didn't even want those boots anymore. So they're just leaving them there. So what people thought they needed... They no longer even wanted. It's very interesting to me. This morning I want to share a couple of ideas, a couple of thoughts about this simple, or maybe not so simple, depending on our perspective, question. And the question is this. Uh, what do you want? What do you want? There are a few things in life that can change our perspectives. Uh, they can change the way we think about what we need. They can change the way we feel about what we want. A few things. The teachings of Jesus, I would say, are one of those few things. They can change your perspective. One of the alarming thoughts, and I've shared this with you already, one of the alarming thoughts that flew through my mind a couple of months ago as I began to read the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the first part of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' teachings there, these eight statements given by Jesus, known as the Beatitudes, one of the, one of the um, kind of disturbing thoughts that came into my mind was that I don't even think like this. I read these lists of blessings that Jesus gives, and I thought to myself, I don't even think like this. This is not the way I define blessing. I, this, this kind of way of thinking feels very unnative to me. This is not normal for me. And as I said a couple weeks ago, when that thought came into my mind, I had two reactions that happened very, very quickly. The first reaction was this. Well, that's not surprising, Nathan. That's not surprising. Uh, we live in a culture where nobody thinks like this. 
You grew up in this culture, nobody thinks like this. The lifestyles that we celebrate, the movies that we watch, the media, the entertainment, they hold up as ideal. They showcase a set of values and possessions that are almost opposite to what Jesus says is blessed. Instead of poverty, we celebrate wealth in our culture. That's what we do. And Jesus says you're blessed if you're poor in spirit. Instead of meekness, we celebrate muscle. That's how you get stuff done in our culture. You just, you're the bigger guy. You're the stronger team. Like, that's, how, that's how success happens. It's almost the opposite of what Jesus calls blessed. We don't celebrate mercy. Uh, we celebrate judgment. That's what we celebrate in our culture. Just look at the, the current political process happening in our, in our country. Almost every day you're given uh, an example of a value system that flies absolutely in the face of the teachings of Jesus. It's just not at all the kind of values and the priorities that Jesus says are blessed. So, two months ago, I'm reading Jesus' statements, and I'm thinking, you know, this is not the way I think. This is not the way I, this is just not normal for me. And two things happen. One, I get this reaction. The first little voice comes into my head and goes, well, don't be concerned. Don't be concerned. Nobody thinks like this. You know? and, and, then, and then a couple of seconds later, the, the next little voice comes up. And it's like, oh, be very concerned. <laughs> right? You should be very concerned because Jesus thinks like this. And if you don't think, well, don't be concerned. Nobody thinks like it. Yeah, but you should be concerned. Because <laughs> if you want to follow Jesus, this is what you need to think. Right? This is what needs to challenge your, this needs to change your perspective, in other words. Right? So, because Jesus is not saying, if you do this, then I'll give you this reward. If you do this, you'll be blessed with this thing. If you're like this, God will like you and he'll be nice to you. That's not, this is not a list of rewards that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about something much more provocative than that, much more powerful than that. He's basically saying that these are, there are these conditions that you avoid at all costs and there are blessings in them. You need to stop avoiding these conditions. You need to embrace these, like what? Like poverty of spirit. Why would I want to acknowledge my need for help? Because there's a blessing there that you can't get anywhere. There is blessing in sorrow. Man, I want to avoid sorrow as, as, as aggressive. Don't avoid it, Jesus says, because if you're sorrowful, there is comfort that can come into that very same space that the sorrow happens, comfort can happen. Being merciful, I don't want that. He says that's a blessed position. Being meek, I want to be strong. He says don't, there's a, there's a blessing there. There are blessings in these places that you are trying at all costs to avoid. In other words, there are all these kinds of realities that open up a person on a variety of levels to all these practical gifts that we in our culture don't value. Things like belonging to the kingdom of heaven, right? Things like spiritual comfort at our point of real pain. Things like um, of being shown mercy. So what do I do with all that? If, if this way of thinking, if Jesus' way of thinking, this way that's sort of natural for me is so different from the way Jesus is thinking and the way that's so natural for our culture to think is so different from the way Jesus seems to think, well, what do I do with that? That's a tough question. What do I do with that? This, this has always been a really challenging port, uh, portion of Scripture to me. Matthew 5, the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's hard. Um, but one way that we can begin, I think, to kind of begin to dig through the layers that exist between my thinking and Jesus' teachings is to question the questions that we normally ask. 
right? To question the questions that our culture is asking. And that sounds like this. You know that question you're always asking about? Put that question on the shelf for a minute and try it for a season to get behind that. What's behind? Why is that question so important for you to answer? What's the question behind that question? What's the issue beneath that issue that you're constantly wrestling with? Why is that question that you ask all the time that people have all kinds of little, quick, simple, easy answers that never satisfy you because they're lame and you know they don't work in real life? Why then are you continuing to ask that shallow question that evokes easy answers? It's not that it's an illegitimate thing to do, but it's not very helpful, so set it aside for a season. Try to get behind and beneath that. That's challenging. It's often painful. It requires perseverance. It requires community because you need people to reflect accurately back to you about what you're thinking and why you're thinking it. So we're just going to look at a couple more of these Beatitudes this week and next, the last two weeks of Lent. Today I want to look at this this, uh, statement of Jesus's. It's uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Jesus says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. First, I want to talk about what it means to be full and what it means to be empty. Then, I want to talk about this word righteousness. That's strange. And then, I want to talk about desire. Okay? That's where we're headed. First, the good thing that Jesus connects to hungering and thirsting for righteousness is being filled. Another way of saying being filled in this context is to say being satisfied, being fulfilled, being satisfied. What Jesus is doing here is so important. Jesus is exposing the reality that much of what we seek and much of what we get doesn't actually fill us up, doesn't actually fulfill us or satisfy us. In other words, it is possible to have everything you ever wanted and still be empty inside. That's what Jesus is exposing, that reality. When I was a kid, I loved to read sports biographies. And occasionally, somebody would be especially transparent in their own sports biography, and it would be some athlete that had attained the best and the highest. They'd won the Super Bowl. They'd hit the winning hit in the World Series. And then they would, in this moment of transparency, they would reveal... That even though they had everything they ever wanted, that having everything you ever wanted isn't what you really thought it was all about. And that there was still an emptiness inside. And it was always shocking to me, like as an 11 or a 12 or a 13-year-old kid. What? How can you not be fulfilled with what seems to be the ideal in life? And yet they would reveal constantly, and I shouldn't say constantly, occasionally, they would reveal this, this disappointment, this It didn't deliver the way it said it would. I'm still needing something. And that's especially tragic to read that, especially if somebody that you look up to or consider a hero. Because what's revealed in that moment is the deception behind so much of what we pursue. The deception behind so much of what things promise that they will provide. One person described it like this. You spend your whole life climbing a ladder only to realize when you get to the top, with horror, you climb the wrong ladder, right? The promise of fulfillment turns out to be an empty promise. That's tragic, and I think more people experience this than admit to it. 
Because if you admit to it, you're admitting that you spent a lot of time, a lot of energy, you made a lot of sacrifices, and it, ultimately you were pursuing fool's gold. And that's a hard reality to admit. So the question that so many, uh, that's behind so many of the questions that we ask, really, is what do you want? What do you actually want? And part of Jesus' teaching Part of what it does here is it challenges whether or not that thing you want can deliver. Part of what that thing you say you want can actually provide the fulfillment and the satisfaction that, that you hope that it will provide or that you believe that it will. What Jesus says definitively is that the pursuit of righteousness will fill you. The pursuit of righteousness will satisfy you. If you want righteousness, you'll actually get it and bonus, blessing, it will be satisfying. The blessing of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is that you'll receive it and it will be fulfilling. It will satisfy. All right, so secondly, that was the first. Secondly, let's talk about it. What is it? Righteousness is one of those powerful words in scripture that's had really bad PR for a long time. Right? We don't even use this word anymore, righteous or righteousness, much. We don't hear it talked about very much anymore. And if we do hear it, it's usually as part of some sort of an insult. She's so righteous. You know? He thinks he's all righteous. Uh, really, and that's kind of sad because that's a reaction to self-righteousness, which is sort of a perversion of righteousness um, itself. It's unfortunate because righteousness is a beautiful word, and righteousness is such an important word. Uh, write this down. Righteousness is more than being good. Isn't righteousness as being good? It is that, but it's more than being good. Secondly, righteousness is more than doing the right thing. It is that, but it's more than that. I would offer this definition for righteousness. Righteousness is conforming being transformed, would be another way to say it, into the will of God in thought, word, and deed. Righteousness is, is conforming to the will of God in thought, in word, and deed. There's a scene in Matthew 3 where Jesus argues with John the Baptist about baptism. John the Baptist is like, whoa, I'm not going to baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus insists on being baptized, and his rationale is this must be done so that all righteousness will be fulfilled. In other words, I got to think like the Father, I got to speak like the Father, I got to act according to the will of the Father. When you are holy, another way of saying it is like this if you're holy, and if you, if you act justly, then what you're thinking and what you're saying, what you're doing is called righteous. Your, th your thoughts, your words, your actions. True righteousness is never self-righteousness because true righteousness is never from yourself. Only God is self-righteous. So we must receive righteousness as a gift, which is what happens when we accept that Jesus' death on the cross pays for our sin. When we accept that, we are in this sort of legal sense justified before God. We're made right before God. Because of Christ, we are made righteous. Because Christ, 
who thought according to the will of the Father, who spoke according to the will of the Father, who acted in accordance with the will of the Father. Christ took our place. And so biblical writers, this big theme is that um, they talk about righteousness as a gift that we receive by God's grace. And it's also something that we're called to pursue. It's also a virtue that we're called to grow in also, though, by God's grace. So there's a degree to which Christians have been made righteous. And then there's also a sense in which Christians continually grow in righteousness. So Jesus' statement in Matthew 5 can sound kind of super spiritual and not very practical. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Maybe it would be helpful to think of it as blessed are those who want to think according to God's will. Blessed are those who want to speak according to God's will. Blessed are those who want to act according to God's will. For if you want that, Jesus says, if that's what you want, you will be filled. In other words, you'll get it and it will be satisfying. It will be fulfilling. This is what Jesus teaches me to want. Wanting this righteousness is what Jesus says is blessed. But, and here's the third part, he doesn't actually use the word want, does he? He doesn't actually use the word want. And that's so interesting. It's so interesting. Why is that so interesting? Because uh, each of these statements throughout the Beatitudes, they're so simple. He uses no analogies in the Beatitudes except one time. He uses very simple language. The content is strong, but the language is not strong in the Beatitudes. The language is very simple and very basic. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Powerful content, very simple language. Blessed are the merciful, they'll be shown mercy. Powerful content, really basic, simple, not strong language. But here, he wants to emphasize the intensity of longing that is needed in order to pursue God's will. And so he doesn't say, blessed are those who want righteousness because that's not strong enough language. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for it, right? Because he's trying to demonstrate and articulate a strength of desire here, an intensity of desire. Jesus is saying, you really got to want this. You got to want it. Are you hungry? Anyone hungry? A little bit. I'm rarely hungry. You're hungry? I'm rarely hungry because I'm eating all the time, pretty much. But I've been fasting occasionally throughout Lent. And when it comes time for the fast to end and for me to eat, it doesn't matter what else is going on. I'm heading to the refrigerator. It doesn't matter what else is going on in my life. It doesn't matter. I'm getting there. I'm going to eat something while I prepare to eat something. I'm ready to eat. It is my focus. It is my priority. I want food. I'm hungry. I want food more than I want anything else. I'm sorry, whatever's breaking, I need to eat right now, right? This is what has to happen first. I want food so bad that I'm going to say no to everything, and it will be easy to say no to everything else. It's very easy because I want to eat that badly. It's my first priority. 
And thirst, oh my gosh, thirst, that just feels like an even more desperate verb, doesn't it, than hunger. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who thirst to speak according to the will of God. Blessed are those who thirst to act according to the will of God. We say this all the time um, in coaching. We say this all the time in coaching. We say, you got to want it. You got to want it. Okay? I can teach you, str- I can teach you technique all day long. Uh, we can all sit around and we can discuss strategy all day long. At the end of the day, you got to want it. You got to want this more than other stuff. It's got to matter to you. It's got to be your focus. This needs to become a priority. You got to want this bad enough that you say yes to this and no to something else. We all know this is the way it works, right? In anything that matters. Jesus is using really strong language here. And it's the only time in the Beatitudes he does it. Your desire for God's will needs to be really, really strong, really, really intense. Like what, Jesus? Like hunger and like thirst. That's what he compares it to. Right? It's very challenging to me. So let me wrap it up with, with this. You, you got this really spiritual statement of Jesus that includes metaphor, that includes um, weird spiritual words like righteousness, um, that includes sort of this vague promise, you'll be filled. What does that mean? Um, powerful, but we, we read over it. And so in an effort maybe to kind of bring it home, I, I might suggest this. If, if I were just talking to a, a buddy of mine on the baseball field or just coaching somewhere or just walking on the street somewhere, I would say, I might say this. Jesus teaches that you get what you want. I might paraphrase it like that. Jesus essentially teaches that ultimately... You get what you want. Do you want a meaningful relationship with God? Do you really want it? Like, is that what you prioritize? Are you willing to say no to other things so that you can say yes to this? Do you actually desire to have a spirituality that makes a difference in the hardest parts of your life because you have a meaningful relationship? If that's what you want, you're going to get that. You're going to get that, and it will be fulfilling, and it will be satisfying to you. On the other hand, if you're honest, do you want to kind of do it your way? Really honestly, is that what you want? Is that, what you, is that what's important to you, that you're in charge? If that's what you really want, then that's what you'll get. Whether or not that will satisfy you, whether or not being in charge of your own life will be fulfilling, well, that's the gamble, isn't it? That's what is yet to be seen. That's what you find out when you reach the top of the ladder, if you got to the right one or not. Here's the invitation, friends. The invitation is to believe that Jesus knows better than you know, and Jesus knows better than I know what we really want, what, what is worth wanting. That's the invitation. I think it's as simple as that. Who are you going to believe knows better about what you should desire, what is actually desirable, what is worth wanting? Uh, In his famous book called The Confessions, this ancient Christian leader named St. Augustine talks about this God-shaped hole in our heart. He says that we will search in vain until we rest in God. He says nothing can satisfy the one who would not be satisfied with God. 
And he knew what he was talking about. If you ever read about Augustine, he tried everything else before. He had a lot of stuff before. He gave it all up so that he could find peace with God. My suggestion, uh, my conviction, it's a conviction, is that Jesus knows better than me what's worth wanting. Jesus knows better than you what's worth wanting. Amen? Here's a picture from almost the very end of my mom's pilgrimage across Spain. It's an umbrella on the side of the road, uh, side of the uh, trail. This is very funny to us in my family. I'm sure here's the story. It's funny to us because my mom carried an umbrella the entire pilgrimage. She, She spent money and picked just the right one and figured out a way to strap it to her backpack. Uh, She only carried 20 pounds in a pretty small backpack, but there it is, strapped to the back of the backpack the whole time. She wanted the umbrella. Turns out she never used the umbrella. She never needed the umbrella. It's not that it didn't rain, but the storms that came were so intense that they rendered the umbrella totally useless, right? It was just, it wasn't, it just wasn't going to work to do what she hoped it would do. And that's the way it goes sometimes, right? That's the way it goes. Sometimes we want things because we think we need them, and in the end, it, you know, it's, it's, we didn't really need that. And so here it is, umbrella on the side of the road. My sister takes a picture of it because she's like, Mom, 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 leave the umbrella. Come on, let's just do it now. We can put it down and, and leave the umbrella here. Um, <laughs> what do you want? That's the question. What do you want? That is not an easy question to answer. It's layered. There's a lot of factors that go into that. There's a lot of concerns and realities that swirl around that. It's complex. It might not be the easiest question for you to answer. I think it's important for you to try to answer that question. I think it's important for you to try to answer that question as honestly as you can for today. What do I want? But here's what I think to wrap up. Here's what I think is even more important than that. Even more important than that is to believe that Jesus knows what you want, and he he knows what is worth wanting. And, And to ask Jesus for the grace and the clarity that is needed for you to want what's worth wanting. There have been a lot of times in my life when, in honesty, I would admit I don't want God as intensely as I should. I don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is not my top priority. Other things are looking very attractive because I've really kind of, my my desire for God has sort of become lukewarm. And so rather than to wash over that and to say, oh, come on, or beat yourself, so this is what the prayer becomes. The prayer becomes, God, help me to want to want you more, right? Because this is a gift of grace that is given, Uh, Jesus is our friend and our Savior. He wants to restore us to, he wants us to want what our souls were created to want. He is on our side. He He knows what you're built for. He knows what will satisfy you. He wants you to align your desires with that thing, to seek first God and his kingdom. And if you simply don't, then the prayer is, God, help me to want to want you more. Help me to want. There's something in me that knows you know better than me. So now align my emotions, my desires, my pursuits with you and your heart. God, help me want to want you more. Let's pray together.
Let's just take a moment and... Uh, I pray for honesty and clarity, Lord, for us. Uh, the gift of seeing our hearts accurately, our desires. And I pray, Lord, that you would stir in us a renewed desire for you. I pray that where we lack passion, you would give it. Uh, where our desire for you is lukewarm, you'd heat it up. That you would give us the gift of a strong, deep, consuming desire for you. And friends, I just invite you as we pray, because this is a sermon about action and desire, if, if you recognize in yourself a desire, a need for more grace to be received and embodied in your life, to follow Jesus more passionately, I just invite you as an act of, of uh, response to stand where you are. I'm not going to ask you to do anything other than that, but just invite you to stand. If an action would help you to bring some sort of movement to the, to the cry of your heart, just to stand up and say, I know this is me, Lord, I, and I'm standing. God, please, uh, I want to want you more than I do. Um, do something inside my heart again to stir up uh, a sense of reality about what things are being promised to me. And, and how well those things will actually be able to deliver. Stir up in me a conviction, a, a, a beautiful trust in your ability to fulfill the longings of my heart and to satisfy the cries of my soul. Help me to believe with Christ, with conviction, that as I pursue you, as I hunger and thirst for righteousness, I will be filled and I will be fulfilled and I will be satisfied. Lord, would you, would you, as we draw near to you, would you draw near to us as we seek you? God, would you, would you seek us? I know that you're ahead of us and pulling us into a relationship with you and pray that we would have the grace that we need. You would give us the grace to respond to you with our whole hearts, minds, souls, and strength. We love you, Lord. Help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody stand up with me, please. Amen. This, um, I believe this deeply, that it feels like everything relates to it, but uh, this is a sermon that I think is especially important to hear and to pursue in community. Can't do this by ourselves. It's like... Uh, you know, it's, I was telling my wife, I need to work out. I do well when I work out with others. I falter when I try to do it all by myself. Uh, and I think that, that plays across the board. In light of that, we participate in church, right? We are part of a community. And so as part of our gathering of worship this morning, I want to invite you to just welcome those around you um, and to extend peace to them, the peace that has been given to you, to extend it to others. And then we'll come back together in just a couple minutes. So may the peace of Christ be always with you. Thank you. Take a minute, greet those around you, give them a hug, say good morning, welcome them.